0: Hello friends, this episode of Paw & Order is brought to you by our new sponsor, Animal Stone. Animal Stone connects animals to people through solid sterling silver and solid 14 karat gold animal charms. Browse the full collection at animalcharms.com to find your favorite animal and use code PAWS10 for 10% off your order. Proceeds from the sale of 10 animals or more go back to wild conservation. This episode is also brought to you by Naked Coconuts. It's an unfortunate common practice for many coconut product brands to use the cruel labor of monkeys, but naked coconuts isn't one of them. They are committed to providing coconut and MCT oils, soy-free soy sauces, and more, all without the use of animals. And finally, this episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary, and more importantly right now, an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw & Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca simply using the code PAW15 at checkout.
1: This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented. But the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Paw & Order podcast. And these are their stories.
0: OK, everyone, welcome to episode 59 of the Pod & Order podcast. I'm joined today by my co-host, Peter Sankoff. Hey, Peter.
1: Hey, Camille. How are you?
0: I'm good. So listeners, uh, we have to apologize. We took off the last episode. We basically just didn't do one. So we've been off for a month. Um, and we would have let you know in advance, but we hadn't really decided that by the time we recorded the last episode. So there was a bit of a hiatus. We hope you didn't miss us too much.
1: I, but I am not apologizing. We are back. I am not apologizing, Camille. I withdraw that apology. It is July, Camille. In the middle of a pandemic, it's July. We're entitled to a couple of weeks off. Don't start apologizing. I mean, come on.
0: Well, I don't think anyone's going to be super mad at us. I just kind of felt bad that we didn't let anyone know. Okay. Hey, that's fair
1: enough. You can apologize for that. We didn't let people know, but I will not apologize for taking two weeks off. You deserved it, Camille. I I mean, I take two weeks off all the time, but you deserved it.
0: I agree. What did you do? It was a good two weeks off. What did you do? Yeah. (laughs) I went camping, actually. I went up to the Bruce Gray Peninsula area and uh, camped at Sauble Shores Provincial Park, or Sauble Falls Provincial Park, actually, which is a really cool campground. There's like a waterfall kind of area that you could actually swim in. It was one of those things that... If you looked at it, you'd be like, oh, for sure, there'd be signs saying, don't, do not enter, do not swim here. Um, but there weren't. Like, it was totally cool for people to go swimming in this, like, falls area. So that was fun.
1: Are you sure it and was the Ontario? Beach was nice. It doesn't feel right that there would be no warnings. Like, if it, if, you know, are you sure it was Ontario?
0: Oh, there were definitely warnings. It was okay. Like, <laughs> it was like, enter at your own risk, could be dangerous, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it didn't really deter anyone. So, you know,
1: as an aside, you know. Camille, um, just as an aside, since we're on this topic, we're not really, but since we're on this topic. So when I moved to New Zealand, the, the most surprising thing about living in New Zealand, beside the fact that like automobile drivers seemed to honestly want to kill you if you were crossing the road. But aside from that, what surprised me was every time like you would just go to lakes and there would be not only would there be no, no, um, you know, lifeguards, there would be no warnings. There was just none of that. Like New Zealand is a very much, a you know, a risk kind of society. So it was like I was exploring caves like these things would have been like all barred off in Canada. Like you would never be allowed to do it. And in New Zealand, it was like, yeah, go ahead.
0: I found that same thing in Iceland. It's like you show up, there's these waterfalls, there's these canyons, there's like a sign that says what it is, and that's it. There's no like ropes, there's no chains, there's nothing blocking you from going anywhere you want. It's kind of it's kind of refreshing. I mean, I appreciate safety, but sometimes it gets a little bit too
1: much. I hear you.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I took a week off to go camping, and then I actually I was back in Toronto for a bit, and now I'm in PEI. I drove to PEI, so this is where I grew up for anyone who doesn't know that. And my mom still lives here, so I thought to myself, when else will I have like a period of time in my life where I could just go spend several months with my mom in PEI and not have to worry about like being in a certain location because everyone's working from home. So I'm here, it's great. I'm quarantining for two weeks, so I'm partway through that process. And once my quarantine is up and I haven't brought COVID to PEI, um, I'm gonna be able to go to the beach.
1: This sounds like the COVID version of gallivanting, like it's about as close as we can get to gallivanting in the summer of 2020. So I'm, I'm just glad I was able to bust out the word just for your trip to PAI.
0: I'm, I'm happy for you. You must have been so relieved to be able to make a joke at my expense for a change.
1: <laughs> I've been thinking about it for weeks. So, I mean, come on. Yeah. So
0: what's, what's up with you? Did you take some time off too?
1: It's been pretty busy. I did take some time off. Um, um, I took a week off. I got a whole week off. So uh, on top of things, like things aren't busy enough. So my wife and I bought a new house. So I'm in the process of taking advantage of COVID to, you know, buy a house. And uh, so we are, we are in the process of moving and getting all the house stuff together. And houses are a pain because like you're essentially, you're working on two houses at once. I completely forgot about that. It's been a long time since I bought a house, but you're obviously, like you have to get your own house ready and then you have to get the new house ready. So I'm doing all that. Um, and, um, I did take a week off. I went to a, a lake in Alberta. It was really lovely. A week down by the lake. I mean, it's, it's, It's weird. Uh, COVID stuff is weird, right? So I mean, it was a holiday, but it didn't quite feel the same as uh, any other holiday. Uh, A lot of stuff is still closed. You're still, you know, doing all the COVID restrictions. So that was kind of weird in itself. But I did take some time, Camille, um, to read uh, a book I want to talk with you about, because I know you've read it too. It was uh, Jonathan Safran Foer's new book called We Are the Weather.
0: Yeah, yeah, I read that probably early June, late May, and I found it pretty stunning. It wasn't really what I expected.
1: No, it wasn't um, what I expected either, because to me, I mean, I'm curious on your thoughts, which is why I wanted to bring it up. I mean, let's be clear, first of all, about what it is. It's essentially a passionate description of, well, this is how I saw it, a passionate description of why people need to stop eating animals in order to save the planet, that sum it up. Yeah,
0: yeah. I I think that's right. And when I heard about that, I was like, oh, okay, well, it's going to be like a, you know, like a well-written recitation of facts about animal agriculture and eating meat and why it causes climate change and how bad that's going to be. But um, it was completely different.
1: Well, there is that. I mean, that is in there, right? It's just, it's buried very cleverly. It's more of a discursive device. Like the 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 book, this is why I said to Camille when she asked how I liked it, and I said I liked it very much, but I said it wasn't for me in the sense of what I mean by that is the book is essentially, it's an attempt by four to me more than anything else as a way of persuading people who are on the fence or don't care about animals as part of the environmental solution. So as a result, I didn't feel like it was for me because I'm already a vegan, but I found the technique of the way he was trying to reconcile both his own inner concerns about uh, his own inner concerns and failures about being fully vegan with the need to be vegan if we're going to have any chance of stopping climate change.
0: Yeah, and I, I think you're right. We are not the target audience for it. Already convinced don't need to make the case to you or me. Um, But, you know, the way he goes about explaining this, and I think especially for non-vegan audiences, people who are maybe friendly to the issues, but the first part of the book is it's like a meditation on the Holocaust, uh, personal responsibility, collective responsibility, uh, you know, essentially what duties we owe to each other and to ourselves. And then the second part kind of gets into like some facts about animal agriculture and climate change. But, But it's written, it's not like just a, you know, like a narrative form. It's kind of just like, here's a fact, here's another fact. And then he kind of goes on and, um, you know, ties it together pretty beautifully in the end. So I I think it was probably uh, effective, Peter, in reaching people who may not care about the animal issues, but do care about climate change, yet find this like element of hypocrisy within themselves where they sort of know they should be doing something and know a little bit about the links between meat and climate change, but haven't taken those steps yet.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of that. And there's a lot of wrestling with inner doubts. Again, not our doubts, but his doubts, right? And wrestling with his own inner doubts and what should I do to speak out? And does the thing make sense? And I mean, he points to the, the, the difficulty that you and I face in a lot of areas when you try to raise, even still today, when you're trying to raise these vegan issues, how people tune out, how they can get aggressive against you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I, I felt the book was really interesting in the way it sort of meditated through through all of these things and tries to really anticipate a lot of personal objections through his own objections to these problems. And I think I found uh, some of those inner wrestlings, because you point out about the stuff about the Holocaust, like he goes back to that a lot. And it's not for the standard analogy, in case people are wondering, it has nothing to do with, you know, how animal advocates will say that, you know, what's going on with animals now is a Holocaust. Like it has nothing to do with that at all.
0: no. No, it's more about what you do when you sense that there's a looming disaster. So, you know, Jewish people in the early days before it became apparent exactly where the Holocaust was going and how some people, you know, sort of decided early on they were just going to get out. They were not going to stick around and take any chances. And other people did wait and maybe it didn't turn out so well for them. And he kind of wrestles with this idea of like what your responsibility is in the face of a looming disaster and why it's so difficult for one individual to you know, take an action to make a change in their own personal circumstance. It's so much easier just to sit back and kind of wait and see how things go and uses that as a thought device to talk about what we all should be doing when it comes to climate change.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I have decided, Camille, what I've done is um, I've made this book my go-to my go-to book for people who I think have a really good conscience, but have not been able to make that leap. And, and I got to be honest with you, Camille, you know, you and I've talked about this before. Um, I obviously, first of all, I'm, I'm, you know a tiny bit older than you like tiny like not (laughs) not a lot okay I'm like I'm a generation older than Camille and so I mean I I have a a a group of friends that you know that I grew up with that uh, you know and then I have my newer friends and my newer friends tend to be more in the vegan camp not all of them but a lot more of them but my older friends what's amazing to me is I realize now I've been vegan for you know over 15 years and like I have yet to convince any of my older friends by my example like zero and yet they all seem to be you know relatively relatively left leaning relatively environmentally conscious and yet none of them have come around to that so now this is now my go to gift. Like, that's what I'm doing. I just, I bought it. I'm going to try it out on, I picked the, the friend of mine who I thought might be the most receptive. He like, he's come to the Animal Justice Gala and he's very concerned about climate change. So I said, okay, try this book. Like, what? see what it says for you.
0: Well, I, I hope it works. I, I think it's accessible to, to folks who are in that kind of mindset. Um, I like, you know, you mentioned this earlier, but I like how he frames it through his own failings and his own struggles. Like this guy, Jonathan Safran Foer, in 2010 or 2011, he wrote a whole book called Eating Animals about why eating animals is morally wrong and all the problems associated with it. But he admits in We Are the Weather that he still would eat burgers at airports if he's having a long day and he's upset, like he would go back to eating meat. And I think it makes it accessible to people who've had that same sort of struggle and who are Mm. kind of inclined toward a certain perspective, but have just never align their actions with their values. And
1: and I think he does a good job with the stats to show how directly connected animal agriculture is. And also the point that we've made before that the, the most, the single most important thing a person can do, especially in a COVID pandemic when none of us are flying anyway, um, the single most important thing we can do for climate change is, is to stop eating meat and dairy and eggs. And and um, I just wanted to uh, say that I've made that my mission, Camille, because I apparently am a fair, Failure in convincing people to actually go vegan. So um, I'm, I want to make an offer to the listeners of our show. I know there are our listeners here um, um, who listen to our show, Camille. I mean, I think in fairness, I'm guessing our listenership tends towards heavily vegan. But I mean, I think it's also fair to estimate that there are a lot of people here who aren't.
0: Treat, I, I think it? so. We don't really know for sure, but that's my guess.
1: Okay, well, I'm making an offer. The first person who writes in, you've got to send an email to our producer, Shannon Milling, saying you want Jonathan Safran's book, Jonathan Safran's four's book, and you have to explain that you are a carnivore and you eat meat and you'd like to learn more about this. You're at least open-minded about the issue, and I will buy this book for you. Okay, I will buy one copy well, for whoever whoever makes the whoever, whoever wants it.
0: Well, that's cool. I hope we get a taker for it. You can email info at animaljustice.ca and we'll see that and make sure Peter cashes in and buys you a book. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. And I'm sure if we get more than one, who knows, the paw and order coffers are, you know, overflowing. Maybe we'll buy multiple copies, but let's see. I mean, seriously, I would like people to read it because I think it's very persuasive the way it's set out. And I think there's a lot of good arguments for people to work their mind around.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I agree. I agree. Excellent book. And, uh, you know, if if you let me just also mention something that has given me a lot of joy during the pandemic is I bought an e-reader. I bought a Kobo Um, and I bought a Kobo specifically instead of a Kindle because Kobos work with this app called Overdrive, which gives you access to your local library and you can get out e-books right on your Kindle or Kobo, whatever it is. Uh, and Peter, that's how I read his book. I've been taking out tons of awesome books in the library. And I just want to say it's been like a huge um, source of comfort during the pandemic and just something to keep myself occupied. So if you if you aren't already on the overdrive train, I suggest checking it out because you can get that book there too.
1: Oh God, I'd have to read more. I I have no time to read, but anyway, yes, reading, reading, good. Reading is good. So I reading one, is good. I had one more piece of news, Camille. And normally, this would be like the most exciting part of my my my. The podcast for me, and instead it's become just a chore. And I'll explain why. So, like, so I think I mentioned before, like, about a potential trip to the Supreme Court of Canada, and uh, I am uh, representing the Criminal Lawyers Association on a criminal case. And, like, you know, going to the Supreme Court of Canada is like, it's a highlight for any lawyer. And when they asked me to represent them on this particular appeal, Ready for the date, Camille? It was like way back in February. <laughs> right? right. If anybody listen in, I mean, it's right before COVID. So I'm like, you know, sure, of course I'd like to be involved in this. This is fantastic. And I'm like, so like, we were granted leave to intervene in August, which was really nice. And it was nice for about a week until I learned that they wanted to rush the hearing. And now the hearing's going to be held, it looks like, in October. And as a result, like, I don't think it's going to be live and if it is live I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be going and I will do a Webex version of it and it's like to me that's just incredibly depressing I was talking about it with my co-counsel uh, yesterday and it's like you you do all that work because appearing in front of the Supreme Court in Canada is like one of those it's a career defining moment it's really it's a great experience it's very very formal and I mean you remember and and it's just great and and, um, and 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 now I'm doing it on a zoom camera from my office
0: (laughs) oh my god it's so it's so depressing
1: because like you're doing it pro bono and I I don't mind of course doing it pro bono but it's pro bono work so it's a fair bit of work and it's like of course like the carrot uh the 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 proverbial carrot for doing it is because you want to go to the supreme court because it's so exciting it's such a great moment it's like now I'm yeah zoom hi everybody (laughs) It's like I'm kind of sitting in my office
0: wearing sweatpants, sweatpants and a, you know, blazer. I think that's what I'm going to think. It's robes
1: and a sweatpants. Yeah, I think that's the plan.
0: Well, you know, that's kind of comforting, at least no substitute
1: for being there in person. But that's a bummer. A little bit of a bummer. Anyway, let's not end on that down note, Camille, because I think you've got some great news about our animal law conference.
0: I do. So our Animal Law Conference, we've mentioned to you guys before, it's going ahead September uh, 12th and 13th as planned, online, obviously. And tickets are now on sale. So you can go to CanadianAnimalLawConference.ca, buy your tickets. Um, The agenda will be out very soon, possibly by the time this episode is out. And the agenda, Peter, is just jam-packed. We have like oh, my God, almost twice as many sessions as last year because we just got so many excellent submissions and we wanted to include as many voices as we could. Um, It was really, uh, really tough to decide. But there's just an incredible array of speakers. It's going to be as interactive as we can make it despite the format. We're hoping to have lots of opportunities for speakers and participants to chat with each other and do breakout rooms and things like that. And there's also a student conference, uh, just like last year. We had that on the Friday, so the Friday the 11th, and the lead-up to the main conference. So that's going ahead, too, and there's going to be some cool opportunities for students to get involved in that, too, um, including a career panel with some of the nation's top animal lawyers. So fun times all around. Uh, go get your ticket as soon as you can if you want to join us. It's going to be fun.
1: As always, as always, Camille buries the lead, like, because... All I really care about is that on Friday at the student conference, we're going to have my favorite episode of the year, which will be our live recording of Pawn Order. Or has that been canceled from the agenda?
0: (laughs) Uh, Let's discuss this, Peter. Oh, no. We'll see. She's trying
1: to cancel Pawn Order. Okay, well, you know, students, start your protest now. Camille is already trying to abolish the the live Pawn Order, which was, as I understood it, like the hit of the last conference.
0: Well, the only thing is that it just might not be super interesting because it's on Zoom. Like, it was kind of cool before because everyone was in the room with us, but I'm not so sure now. So we'll see. Well, uh, see. We can well
1: you get ready for arm twisting after the show, ladies and gentlemen. Trust me, I'm not letting this one go down easily. I think it will be even better on Zoom. Even better. That's all I have to say.
0: Oh, God. You guys had all better email to check in and see how I'm doing after this arm twisting. <laughs> 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 well, in other news... Peter, you knew that we were running the Summer Compassion Challenge, right? The uh, fundraising campaign to help us go to court and fight against egg gay laws. And I need to thank everybody who contributed to that because it was a stunning success. You guys were extremely generous, um, given us a lot of fuel for the fight against egg gay laws. And that's going to be a huge focus of ours for the next foreseeable future. I, you know, lawsuits like this take a long time to see to their completion. So this isn't gonna be the last time you hear about it, but um, we really appreciate everybody who stepped up, who donated, who became a monthly donor, anyone who shared it on social media because it made a huge difference. So thank you.
1: Thank you. And uh, while we're here and thanking people, why don't we uh, remind people to leave us a review, uh, as you know, Camille and I love reading, uh, reviews and, and checking out how people feel. And of course it helps other people find the show. Please add to our hundred plus five star, uh, reviews and Camille, we got a lovely review that I'm going to share with you. Um, it says, thank you for this fantastic podcast. Uh, I just recently found your podcast via the Animal Law Podcast. Well, that's good to know. Um, I'm a veterinarian in the U.S. and will be teaching animal welfare and behavior at a vet school. Your podcast is informative. Yes, it is. Engaging, timely, and thought-provoking. Even though you are Canadian-based, well, even though, Camille, we are (laughs) Canadian-based, you absolutely provide intelligent and uh, critical perspectives, extremely relevant and parallel to those of us in the U.S., and surely other countries. Countries as well. Your commentary and topical issues are very broad reaching. I wish I could listen to you every day. Well, <laughs> she's going to be mad about our four week hiatus, Camille. Um, and learn more about animal law issues and ethical concerns. I'm thrilled that I found your podcast and you. Well, thank you so much, Elena. I feel that every veterinarian should listen to Paw and Order, in my humble opinion. Oh, and by the way, I love your very widow inch, witty intro to Paw and Order. Ha, ha, ha. And uh oh, Camille. You, you see this next part? <laughs> I'd be more than happy to buy a pawn order shirt and proudly wear it while lecturing. Well, I'd be happy for that, too. I have the only one in existence. <laughs> Thank you very much, Alina, uh, Dr. Alina, um, for your amazing review. That just made my day.
0: That is, yeah, that's one of the best reviews we've ever had. Thank you, Alina. That's really cool. And uh i also need to thank elena for becoming a patreon supporter um we've got two new ones this month jesse and elena and also heather who increased her support amount to a higher dollar figure so we really appreciate that if you want to support us on patreon you can do so for as little as a dollar a month or as high as you like the sky's the limit we offer regular prizes for our patrons and of course our undying gratitude Animal Stone is a Toronto-based, family-owned, women-run business specializing in handmade, solid sterling silver and solid 14-karat gold animal charms. Animal Stone was founded on the principle that humans, animals, and nature must exist harmoniously together to conserve our shared place on planet Earth. Animal Stone believes the joy that animals bring to our lives is an essential component to our ecological systems, so that together we must celebrate and respect their majesty." With the help of in-house designer and goldsmith Delane Cooper, over 40 3D animals have been brought to life, complete with a birth story, name, and personality reflective of the animal as it is in the wild. Animal Stone is a team of animal lovers and eco-warriors who celebrate the beauty of the natural world, while encapsulating this love for wildlife within the miniature bodies that are their Animal Stone charms. Animal Stone's mantra is connecting animals to people, and they have partnered nine of their animal charms up with local and global wildlife organizations to make a difference through rescue, conservation, education, habitat protection, and research. Check out animalstone.com to learn more and use code PAWS10 for 10% off your order today. If you're like us, you're a fan of coconut oil for cooking, baking, or maybe even a moisturizer but we were surprised and disappointed to learn that coconut products are not always as cruelty-free as we thought. I did not know that it's common practice to have monkeys harvest up to 800 coconuts a day to make many of the products that we love. But before you start saying goodbye to coconut oil, we've found a company with all that coconut goodness without the animal labor. Naked Coconuts was born from the desire to help busy people leading busy lives access nutritious foods that taste good and are good for the body, mind, and planet. Sauces, oils, and protein bites that are all soy-free, gluten-free, and made from coconuts harvested by human hands who are paid a fair living wage. So stock up on your coconut oil or MCT oils, soy-free soy sauces and more by heading over to nakedcoconuts.com or finding tons of cooking inspiration on Facebook or Instagram at at NakedCoconuts. I particularly love some of their stir-fry sauces, so please check them out.
1: All right, today, um, we have been away for four weeks, so we do not have a main topic. Instead, what we have got is... It is an incredible array of amazing news stories, Camille, because it's just been popping. There's been a lot going on and uh, nothing more current and more topical has gone on than the events that took place discussed on our last podcast involving uh, Regan Russell, because we now have a lot more developments in this story, including the fact that charges have now been laid against the driver, the unknown driver who killed Regan Russell.
0: Yeah, so lots to discuss here. This news just came out this week. Um, Actually, over the weekend, uh, the family and Toronto Pig Save, Animal Save Movement advocates held a rally calling for charges and also calling for a provincial inquest into her death. And a couple days later, now we're we're seeing charges. So, Peter, she... um, not she... The driver who was behind the wheel of the truck that ran over and killed Regan Russell outside Fairman's Pork Slaughterhouse has been charged with one Provincial Highway Traffic Act offense. He's charged with careless driving, causing death. And there's a bunch of interesting things about that. We'll talk about the substance of the charge in a minute, but I want to say just a couple things from the outset. The police didn't release the name of the truck driver. They say he's 28 years old, but they didn't release his name. Um... I'm not one of those people that thinks you necessarily need to name and shame defendants in situations like this. But it's really interesting when you look at the practices of police when it comes to animal activists. They always release a name. Um, You know, just last weekend in Toronto, a bunch of people were charged with a whole whack of criminal offenses for defacing a statue, allegedly, of John A. MacDonald and Egerton Ryerson, who was involved in slavery and colonialism. Uh, And those people, their names were released right away. So interesting. I'm just going to point that out. The police also say that they have reviewed video footage of the incident, but they didn't release that either.
1: Yeah. Uh, so let's just start with that aspect of it. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm not sure how surprised I am. They didn't release the name. I'm a little bit surprised they didn't release the name. It's not uncommon for them to release the name, even in, um, in. Um, in highway traffic matters that are high profile. Like, they don't do it in, you know, it's not like everybody who goes speeding is going to get their name released on a highway traffic matter. But, like, his name is going to be released... When the charges go to court, like it's not like yeah, this it is, is going to be. It is public information, and, and I, I'm just, I'm just wondering what the reason was. I'm assuming, I, I again, I, I'm always wary in these cases because where you start speculating on top of speculating on top of speculating. So let's just start with a. I don't know how often they do this, but I do know, like I've represented uh, people charged with careless driving causing death, and like their names were released.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's unusual. It, you know, I think demands some explanation and perhaps there should be some consistency in policy because it is a high profile incident. It's attracted a lot of media coverage. Um, the name is now public information. If they've filed an information in the court, which is like the charging document, it is on there and someone can publicly access that. So it's not like a private thing at this point.
1: Yeah, um, that is that is uh, definitely a bit of a strange uh, uh, part of this.
0: Yeah. And now, so the other important thing that people are focusing on, and we wrote a blog post about this, too, which we'll link to in the show notes, but he's uh, he's not being charged criminally. It's important to understand that there's a big difference between provincial charges and criminal charges. Now, we've spoken at length about this on the podcast before in the context of animal cruelty charges laid under the criminal code. So federal serious legislation versus animal cruelty charges laid under provincial laws, which are different. So, Peter, why don't you put your law professor hat on and explain a little bit about the difference between these two levels of charges?
1: Sure. So provincial charges are what's called regulatory charges. They're essentially the way in which we control the regulation of the Highway Traffic Act. So it's essentially, um, you know, it's that the laws governing speeding and running red lights are uh, under the same Legislation, although I should say, and and we'll come to this in just a moment, there are degrees of severity in charges under the Highway Traffic Act. As you know, if you speed or run a red light, you're looking at a fine. Uh, whereas careless driving causing death is if it's not the most serious offense in the code, it's in the highway traffic, it's got to be one of the most serious. That's for sure. Um, and yeah,
0: yeah, it could be. It, it's, it's, it does carry with it a penalty of at least $2,000 up to $50,000 and potentially up to two years in jail.
1: Yeah, the two years in jail being the, the, the you know, the, the one of the highest penalties that's available for any provincial offending. Uh, but obviously criminal code offending is more serious. And um, it's um, in criminal cases, you've got this possibility of two levels of driving offenses. There's dangerous driving, uh, which is dangerous driving causing death is a a far more serious offense with a far more substantial penalty. I believe it's up to life for dangerous driving causing death and uh, criminal negligence uh, causing death, which is um, um, criminal negligence causing death extends beyond driving offenses, but that is the far more serious uh, type of offending. And, And effectively, the difference between the criminal code versions and the regulatory versions to put it mildly, is that the regulated versions, I mean, uh, to put it as, as simply as I can, the regulated versions are for bad driving, and the criminal code versions are for driving that has reached a level of, of criminality, that we morally condemn the nature of the driving that took place. So it's like, the, it's, it's kind of an invisible line, that certain driving crosses the line from being just careless into dangerous. And the focus more often than not, which I think we're gonna come into in just a moment, is often in dangerous driving cases on the 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 nature of the driving that took place and uh, and the extent of it, which tends to separate dangerous from careless driving.
0: Yeah, and you know the way I try to think about it is that careless driving is something more and more in lines with like a momentary lapse of attention. So you you know look away for a second and something bad happens. Whereas dangerous driving has to be um, not intentional because intentionality isn't isn't the, the concern, but certainly more along the reckless side of things, where you're, you know, potentially taking a risk that you shouldn't be taking, and it, it has more than a momentary lapse of attention involved with it. So yeah, I mean, you know, the, as Peter you point out, the police did have a variety of charging options available to them, um, anything from the Provincial Highway Traffic Act and and this charge, which seems to me to be pretty much the lowest charge they could possibly lay, um, up toward the the much more serious criminal negligence charges, which they did not lay. So interestingly, they, they say in the media release, when they when they announced the charges, that they didn't find any level of, and let me just pull up the, the release here it's so in, I can it say says their exact
1: Intentionality. Words. That's the word they use. Intentionality.
0: There were no grounds to indicate this was an intentional act Mm. or that a criminal offense had been committed. I mean, I just want to point out, first of all, that dangerous driving causing death doesn't have to involve an intentional act, you know, in in terms of intentionally trying to kill somebody. That is correct. If a person was trying to kill a person, that would actually be a murder charge, potentially. Mm -hmm. So you know again and we should point out obviously before getting into this conversation that we don't have access to the evidence that the police do we don't have access to anything that's not already publicly available uh, we don't know why the police made this decision we don't know on what basis they decided to do that or made this conclusion about intentionality so we don't know that but yeah. I do still have questions
1: can I can I just Peter, say one two, of those... yeah can I just say two things Camille before because I think I know where you're going with this and I just want to add my own two little caveats to this because and before we can discuss what I I think you want to discuss because I've read your blog post yeah okay let me just add two caveats um one one thing I was thinking of is this and 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 I have I share some of the same concerns that Camille's about to raise about the nature of the charge but I just want to say two things first of all I mean um they they could have they could have charged nothing. Um, that That is not uncommon. As crazy as that sounds, I just want to make it clear that people die on the road every day um, and uh, people kill people on the road every single day in this country. And many of them are charged with nothing. And the reason for that is, is that the focus is on the driving itself. It's not so much on the result. And the Supreme Court has said that very clearly. In fact, in the leading case, I just want to like in the leading case that actually decides this, I. A driver, I believe it was a truck driver, killed three people by crossing over the center median, killed all three of them and walked away with nothing uh, on the basis that the court found that you can't reason backwards from the deaths to find criminality. So I just I wanted to say as a caveat, like they could have charged nothing. I think that would have been outrageous in the circumstances, but like, you know, (laughs) in light of what we're about to talk about. It wouldn't have been the most surprising result on in world history, so that's number one. Um, number two, I I I have a little bit of hesitation. One thing that I've said, and and I don't I don't think you've said this, Camille, but I have read some of the results saying that careless driving is just like. You know, a bogus, lame, nothing type of charge. Um, I I struggle with that a little. Again, having represented people facing careless driving causing death, like it is not a speeding ticket. It is not a you are you are very. Possibly contemplating jail time. Um, not, not, obviously not of the same duration as dangerous driving, but it is something you are facing. So I just, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say this is a nothing charge. It's a serious charge. It's one of the most serious regulatory charges you can face. And you know that person is going to be, I'm sure, defending it uh, as vigorously as they can. And the third thing I wanted to say um, in the difference between careless and dangerous driving. Is just this when I've looked at the cases, and I am not, uh, I am not trying to defend the police charge, which is what we're about to get into, and why they didn't charge dangerous or careless. But I will say this: I have seen a tendency in these cases that when they charge dangerous driving, what they want to see is a more prolonged pattern of driving that's problematic. And I think if I could, if if I've any, um, um. I don't want to say defending what they charged here, because I have some of the same concerns you're about to raise. What I would say is... I'm not. It wouldn't surprise me if that's what factored into their decision, that it was more of a momentary, quick, short action. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I'm just guessing this wasn't a case where the driving was prolonged and you could see that the driver was speeding and you could see that the driver was overtaking. That is normally what they look for in dangerous driving cases. So those are my three caveats before we get into the uh, discussion of the charge itself.
0: And while we're on the topic of caveats, let me just add one more of my own before we get into the substance of this discussion, which is that I'm generally pretty skeptical of the ability of the criminal law to redress harm. Um, I don't think it's a great tool for doing what society thinks it does, which is like deter people from offenses, um, you know, have the kind of eye for an eye, like retribution aspect to it. I mean, I don't find that's personally like a morally useful construct. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical of of criminal law as a tool. I'm skeptical of jail as a tool to enforce social norms and to improve situations. So I'll, I'll say that, too. But <laughs> but here's here's where I have some issues. OK, so let me let me just discuss first some of the circumstances that we know to be true about this case. So yeah. we know that the truck driver was stopped at a red light, uh, not a red light, actually a red light and a green light at the intersection where the incident occurred. For about five minutes, he was stopped there, and he he wasn't turning into the slaughterhouse and into the lane where Regan was standing. Um, the protesters think that he was doing that basically to mess with them, to make it more dangerous for them, so they would have to approach his truck uh, on the road instead of approaching it after it turned into the lane a bit, and he stopped. So, I mean, he is sta- sitting there for like a good several minutes um, she is standing in front of the driveway that mm. whole time. Like, did he never look over and see her? With, I don't know. That seems kind of area, hard to swallow.
1: Right. With people, with people, in, people in the era, this yeah. is not a situation like where I'm more sympathetic in these cases, and where you see the police charge nothing at all is a lot of situations where, for example, like the fact that someone dies cannot be the reason. You know, you have a a, a person who's jaywalking and suddenly appears in the road, and a car hits that person. That person's gonna die. Like that may not be dangerous or careless driving because there's nothing to be expected. And and what's what's I think is so upsetting to everybody in this case and you you Camille in the blog is that like the nature of the interaction was not unknown.
0: No, this is something that has been going on outside the slaughterhouse for five, six, seven years. People have been standing there, they've been protesting, they've been giving water to pigs. Um, I believe I I don't want to say this is for sure, because so my memory might fail, but I believe people have seen this driver before. So it's very likely not the first time he has been there with these protesters around. Like, it's a pretty known quantity at this point that they're going to be there. So does that play into what steps he should have taken in the circumstances? I don't think you can say it doesn't.
1: Well, what you also so said, though, Camille, is that he was stopped, right, for a period of time before he st- restarted yeah. the car. We're well, Sorry, restarted the truck. I apologize.
0: Yeah, before he turned the vehicle. So like at a bare minimum, you would have expected him to look where he was going and make sure that the path is clear. Um, you know. And then the other, the other little contextual factor here is that this is not the first time that truck drivers have, quote unquote, played chicken with protesters. And I'm not saying that that's what he did because I don't know, but there's lots of documented video evidence of truckers knowing that protesters are there turning into that laneway anyway. And one of them... Um, you know, one of them stops, one of the, the trucker stops or the protesters get out of the way. Sometimes they do collide. Um, They have like a slow speed collision, basically, and no one has died or been seriously injured, thankfully, from that yet. But it's far from the first time that truckers have acted in this way. So you got to wonder about that too. And then the other thing, of course, I'm always wondering about is the fact that this took place two days after Bill 156, Mm -hmm. the A-gag law passed, Mm -hmm. which has, you know, potentially had the effect of emboldening the industry against activists. We don't know, but I'd love to know what communications the truck uh, company sent out to the drivers, what communications the slaughterhouse has sent out to various people. So, you know, again, don't have access to the evidence that police do. But there's, do, a, so lot it's, it's of, there's to... a lot
1: of things that are smoky. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. y- y- you just, you, you, you I share your view. I mean, when this originally came out, I was tending towards careless. I'm not, I wasn't, if you heard my comments from the, the month before, like I I was not surprised. Um, I was not surprised it got careless rather than dangerous. And I say that in part because of what I know about dangerous driving charges. It's more that than anything else. But that said, Camille, I thought your piece was persuasive and raises a lot of real questions about, you know, why? Like this is some, this is the kind of case that it's like, you, you look at it and you go, well, why? There's a lot of there's a lot of smoke. This was not an ordinary driving interaction. There was more to it than that. And it's, it's, it's kind of, it, it feels almost as if the police may have decontextualized the entire incident and, and done it in that particular way and, and just looked at it, okay, ordinary traffic accident. And it's like, there's not, there's a long sort of history of evidence surrounding what took place.
0: Yeah, surrounding this particular slaughterhouse, but also surrounding the broader context of industry getting treatment with kid gloves and activists having the book thrown at them. So let's just recontextualize this, to use your words a little bit for for our listeners. So animal safe movement has been protesting outside of that particular slaughterhouse for quite some time. And as I mentioned a moment ago, there have been multiple incidents where trucks have run into activists or acted dangerously to hurt them. Thankfully, nobody's been seriously hurt or died yet, but the police have never charged anybody for driving-related incidents before. It, it's not permissible to hit people with a vehicle, and that has happened, and there have never been charges. So let's just get that out of the way. Um, but what do they do? So they have laid multiple charges against people for various protest issues outside that slaughterhouse. Uh, the most high-profile one is Anita Crines, who in 2015 was charged by the Halton police, who are not charging the driver criminally, But they did charge Anita Krines with criminal mischief for giving water to thirsty pigs trapped inside a truck outside that slaughterhouse on a sweltering day. And she was, of course, acquitted after a much publicized trial. But it cost her a lot of money to defend. Um, It's certainly not a pleasant thing to be charged criminally and contemplate having to go to prison if you're found guilty. Uh, And the reason that she was there giving water to those pigs in the first place is again related to a failure of law enforcement authorities to lay charges. So, Peter, we've got, of course, animal transport laws in this country. Weak as they may be, they do prohibit causing suffering, undue suffering to animals during transport, including from heat exhaustion or frostbite. But activists regularly documented pigs arriving in that condition or arriving injured, dead, or dying from some other means. And I'm not aware of a single prosecution filed by the CFIA against that slaughterhouse or the trunk company for that kind of suffering. So you've got all this evidence of illegal action by the industry and no one ever gets charged or punished for it. Yet anytime the activists are in a position where the industry doesn't like what they're doing, the police seem happy to come in and charge them.
1: Yeah, that is I I think that was the most persuasive thing um, that I read out of out of your blog is that this sort of again, when you when you look at everything in context, it does. It's not again, if you take if you if you completely decontextualize this incident, careless driving, causing death. It, it seems like it's a a very potentially appropriate case, right? I mean, you had a truck. It started up. It hit a pedestrian. Like again, completely decontextualized. And it's like you can see it. And I go, well, it's not. It's not outrageous. That strikes me as, like, that's a borderline call, dangerous versus careless. But when you put all the context back, I can see why why so many people are so upset. Because, really, when you look at the whole thing in context, you see a troubling history, and, frankly, not just the history, a troubling uh, uh surrounding circumstances of this incident that I think raise a lot of questions. And, and frankly, I would like to see a few of those questions answered. And, uh, and looking at the broader context is not what a careless driving causing death charge is going to do.
0: No, you can never examine these issues in the context of one trial, because the only issues that are relevant to the determination of that charge is that particular incident. Well, and so not to mention the the that the, courts, only,
1: the only people who care about it, the only people with standing at that type of inquiry, as we know, like the victim and the victim's family never have standing in these types of inquiries. The only interests represented are the, the state and, and the driver.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, that's why I think it is good that the family is calling for a coroner's inquest into Regan's death, because that's the type of uh, inquiry that's typically used to look at broader systemic issues that contributed to somebody's death or multiple deaths. Um, And in this case, I think you could look at both the failure of the slaughterhouse to engage in a safety agreement with these activists, um, the right to lawfully protest outside slaughterhouses, uh, the actions of the police, and whether by you know, ignoring the illegality of the slaughterhouse and the um, drivers for so long, they've contributed to this too. And I think that's all really important to inquire into.
1: Uh, I think you're totally right and in fact I was more interested than in that in, in a sense on that call um, than I was um, in the criminal charge and, and normally it's the other way around and the reason I say that is in most murder cases or homicide cases or death cases the, you know the garden variety one like I'm much more interested in the circumstances of the event right and the focus on the actual criminal trial which really looks at the event in question but I think every once in a while you have events that take place that are symptomatic of something more broad. And I think the only way to address those given the limitations of a criminal trials focus is through an inquest. And we've seen that before. Like if you go back, I mean, this is going back quite a ways. But I mean, I remember when I was going to law school, one of the biggest things was... um, the Westray mining disaster in Nova Scotia. And it was a huge issue. And there was a lot of focus about the criminal charges, but the criminal charges faced all kinds of procedural and legal hurdles I'm not going to get into. In contrast, the inquiry into the Westray mining disaster was incredibly insightful and led to a lot of new rules and regulations that were better for the long-term process. And and I think that's what a coroner's inquest has the ability to do. And I, I I'm, can't say I'm particularly optimistic about them getting one, but I, I certainly hope that they do.
0: Yeah, yeah, me too. Me too.
1: Well... Well, that's a lot. I guess that's, that wraps that up. Yeah, that's a tough story, and it's going to be an ongoing story. And uh, and again, I wish to stress that um, as as we'd said last time, our, our thoughts are really with uh, uh, Reagan's family and friends. And and there's just I, you can see why people are so upset about this and so upset about the charging decision. And and I, I totally understand that. Like I totally understand that this is such a it is, it is just such a, a um a crazy event that's taken place. That's not the word I was looking for, crazy. But it's just a, it's the type of event that has just really triggered people's feelings and and emotions, even uh, most especially for those who were there, but even people like me who were nowhere near the place that was going on. It's such an upsetting event, and it it really is something that we need to continue to focus on and look at. And, And that's why I would love to see an inquest into this, to focus on what is going on in these areas.
0: Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Okay, well, from one slaughterhouse story to another one... Um, this one is, you know, again, has a dark side, but also is a little bit optimistic. Um, there's been a class action lawsuit filed against the Cargill meat placking plant in High River. Um, and of course, that's a facility linked to more than 1,500 COVID 19 cases and even three deaths. So the the lawsuit's been filed by a Calgary law firm, and it alleges that Cargill should have known that it was not protecting its employees adequately, basically, like it didn't have um, adequate protective measures at all. And this not only affected the employees, but also the people close to them as well. So family members and friends that they might live with. And a lot of people got sick.
1: Yeah, very interesting story. I mean, this is more of a COVID story than an animal story per se. But obviously, we've we've connected in the past the the difficulties of, of slaughterhouses and the problems that are uh, that, that go on in there um, to the issues involving COVID. And I think it's a really interesting story. And I'm I'm curious to see. Um, whether the class action lawsuit gets certified and is able to move forward. But I mean, it seems to me they've got a, an interesting case and it's just the first of the pandemic type COVID cases that are gonna, what would be interesting to me in this case, Camille, is like, I'm always interested in any case that can tell us more about the workings of a slaughterhouse. There's sort of that indirect, obviously it's not an animal law related story, but uh, if this, this type of case goes to trial, it's very likely to expose a lot of what goes on in the workings of a slaughterhouse.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I sure hope so. I I would really like to know more about their practices. And, um, you know, class actions, we should say, and I don't know much about the law of class actions in Alberta, Peter, because I practice mostly in Ontario, but um, the difficulty with class actions tends to be getting them certified. So you need approval from the court to file a class action. You can't just make one. Um, It has to be certified. And I think in practice... Usually after certification, that tends to be the big fight. And at that stage, they tend to settle. So we'll see what information does get released, if anything. But I I do hope this will be revelatory in some way as to the broader issues in slaughterhouses.
1: Me too. And I could tell you what I know about uh, uh, class action lawsuits in Alberta, Camille. Oh, I just did. That's that's all I know. (laughs) (laughs) Action lawsuits in Alberta. Not my not my area of specialty. You're a criminal lawyer. (laughs) That's okay. Well, we've got another we've got another interesting lawsuit, and this one, like I just read the statement of claim before we began this, and uh, I let me just say. Oh, we have a lot to talk about in this one, because I love this. This is this is a lawsuit that, as you know, Camille, from experience, we would have great difficulty running in Canada, because unfortunately, we just don't have the same sort of statutory uh, assistance, as it were. But it is a consumer protection uh, uh, lawsuit being run by the group called Animal Outlook, which you may know by their former name. I didn't know they had switched, Camille. Compassion over yeah. killing. And it is a lawsuit being run on the basis of, effectively, it's consumer protection legislation. It is being uh, brought against uh, a company uh, called Cook Aquaculture, which I think markets itself as True North Salmon, Camille. And everything I've read about True North Salmon, Camille, did you know that Martha Stewart recommends that we eat more True North Salmon, Camille?
0: Apparently, she's the celebrity spokesperson for them. Because,
1: let me just say... Can I tell you all the things about True North Salmon that you would want to know if you were trying to buy it? It is sustainable. They go above and beyond the regulatory requirements, Camille. So does Canada Goose, by the way. And its products are ecologically sound, naturally raised, and adhere to, are you ready for this? Optimal animal welfare standards. Well, apparently. Oh, I that thought might they not were going to say
0: the highest standards <laughs> of animal welfare, which is their usual line, but optimal is pretty close.
1: Well, Animal Outlook doesn't like it and is bringing a lawsuit. I, what, what I also love about this lawsuit is they're not asking for any money. They just want all the practices to stop.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's obviously not a self-centered lawsuit at all. It's just about the animals. Um, but it's a cool lawsuit. And so... They're relying on an investigation they did actually, an undercover investigation that they did last October. I think it came out into um, a salmon facility in Maine, basically this fish farm, where they documented all kinds of awful stuff. Peter, of course, we we know a lot about for uh, fish farm situations now, and it's pretty brutal. Animals are kept in pretty terrible conditions. Um, their welfare certainly suffers. They're also an ecological catastrophe. They're terrible because the fish produce a ton of waste. They need a ton of inputs to be fed. Um, they're really not a quote-unquote sustainable operation at all, but that's exactly what uh, this this company marketed itself as being. So Compassion Over Killing, or rather Animal Outlook, is saying that they're deceiving consumers and that they should be enjoined from doing so.
1: What I love about this is <laughs> it's it's great. It's a great lawsuit. And, and one of the things I love about it is, like, it's being brought in the District of Columbia, which is, you know, Washington, D.C. And you may think to yourself, why is it being brought in D.C.? <laughs> because True North Salmon operates mainly, from what I can tell, in Maine, Does that sound all right? I mean, it's Atlantic salmon and their operation is in Maine, but they do sell some salmon in the District of Columbia. And oh, why do they do this? I mean, it even says that they market the product in the District of Columbia, which gives you the jurisdiction to do it. And of course, the reason why Animal Outlook is bringing it is because the District of Columbia has a really favorable Consumer Protection Act. And most importantly, here's my favorite part, and Camille, I bet you as, you know, Executive Director of Animal Justice are salivating over this clause in the CPPA, which says that a nonprofit organization may on behalf of itself or any of its members bring an action seeking relief from the use of a trade practice in violation of a law in the district, including a violation involving consumer goods. um, in order to test or evaluate qualities pertaining to use for personal household or family purposes. So essentially, a nonprofit organization can just go and bring a lawsuit uh, and say, well, these consumer things that they're saying in their advertising are false. Now, we can do that in Canada, can't we, Camille?
0: Uh, yeah, actually, we can do some of that. We've got pretty reasonable stuff at the federal level, and there's, there's all kinds of provincial acts too that no one has really explored in the way yet that they need to. But see, but it's I, cool. I was being
1: facetious. Do we have the ability? Is there actually? I thought we had to go through the Competition Bureau or, or whatever. I thought, or is that just the easiest way to do it?
0: Yeah, no. There's actually a consumer supervision. You, you've got to do it under the Competition Act, but but you can sue yourself.
1: Oh, fantastic! Then I take it back. Then we could do the exact same thing. <laughs>
0: And yeah, and cool. I just um, I just wanted to shout out to uh, my friend Jay Schuster, who's one of the lawyers on this. They're represented by Richmond Law Group, which is a great consumer protection firm, and they do all kinds of animal-focused litigation.
1: Well, I love these lawsuits. I want to bring more of them. I mean, I know. I, I'm guessing. Um, I, I, although I would probably guess that in the U.S. they have more favorable cost sanction provisions. that sounds probably uh, likely? And that they're not facing oh, yeah. oh, quite yeah. as many cost sanctions if they lose. So it's a little riskier. But I mean, I love these types of litigation. We've talked about that in the past. But anything that can, you know, break through the ridiculous marketing efforts that are put on by so many of these industries um, in terms of their animal welfare, you know wonderful bona fides would be great. I think that's the type of of litigation that's really useful in slowly breaking through uh, the messaging morass.
0: Yeah, it's a great case. And actually, I don't think you know about this yet, Peter, but uh, someone from Animal Outlook, a lawyer named Will Lowry, is going to come speak about this case at our animal law conference in September. So if you're intrigued and you want to hear more about this and more about fish issues in general, there's going to be a couple of really cool panels focused on these issues.
1: Fantastic. Well, let's go from uh, District of Columbia all the way across the planet to my own former home of New Zealand, where sadly, New Zealand. Uh, yeah, well, it's a good news, bad news story. I'd say mostly bad news story uh, involving a horrible abuse that took place on a farm and it was filmed uh, secretly, as we've seen in so many of these cases by undercover investigators. And then those videos were thrown out of court uh, as evidence, Camille.
0: Yeah, yeah, so pretty disturbing. Um, you know, apparently the the footage depicts some pretty awful stuff, Peter. Um, so it was a 2018 Farm Watch investigation, and it showed a bunch of different abuse of, of cows. Um, so a farmer hitting a defenseless cow around the back legs with a metal bar while she was being milked. Um, more footage shows him beating her across the face or beating cows across the face in the back and the legs while they're being moved they're clearly terrified and um
1: painting a cow with a a pipe and a metal bar painting a a cow with the words i am an asshole and sharing it on social media
0: yeah it's just like ridiculous awful stuff um, and, you know, that's that's the explicit abuse. And um, this one, the story we're going to post a link to notes the evident anger outpourings from this guy uh, bashing cows repeatedly. But there's also pictures of cows just, um, you know, with like standard dairy farm injuries and, and suffering like swollen legs. Um, other situations where they're just experiencing the drudgery of daily life. So there's a lot of really awful stuff in this video and pretty clear illegality.
1: So the interesting part of the case legally is that the judge decided that the evidence had to be thrown out or a lot of it. Now, there was obviously enough evidence to still get a conviction in this case, but a lot of the video evidence had to be uh, thrown out. And um, the the yeah, it says here that the charge he was convicted on relied on evidence from others right? But all the hidden camera footage was thrown out. And the reason given by the judge was a concern that if they admitted this type of evidence, it could encourage deliberate flouting of the law. It was reasonable to infer that if encouraged, they will continue to gather evidence by these methods. Now, to me, Camille, that's the most important part of the decision that we should discuss.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because it puts animals in a really untenuous position. So you've got evidence of clear illegality. So somebody who's actually flooding the law Um, And not just, um, you know, not just a trespass law, which tends to be a relatively minor offense, but serious criminal laws against causing suffering to animals. This this farmer flouted those laws. And yet the judge is saying that the biggest concern in this case, or I shouldn't say the biggest concern, but his concern here is encouraging other people to trespass on farms and obtain video footage through uh, so-called illegal means. So, you know, Peter, we talked about this a lot before, yeah, but absolutely. this puts animals in a tough position because who else is watching? Yeah. There's no inspections. There's no... Um well, certainly in Canada, New Zealand's a little bit different, but there's not certainly comprehensive government inspections of farms. There's no cameras on farms that are live streamed to the internet or anything like that. Like there's, there is no way for the public to be assured that animals are not being abused unless someone does go and get that footage either through an employment-based investigation or sometimes through trespass.
1: Yeah. So I've been worried about this for some time. You and I have had private uh, conversations along the lines. I believe I, 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 I believe, if I'm accurate, it might have been with you or with some other friends. But I predicted this would happen at some point. I really, I predicted that at some point judges would try and analogize um, to effectively police, right? Who go in without warrant and they, you know, illegally gather evidence or legally or illegally they trespass or gather evidence in some way. And and what concerned me about it is that the analogy is so flawed. Um, first of all, you know, people operating for private groups are not. Not the police. If you want to punish them under the laws of trespass or whatever, as we know, you can do that. That doesn't have any impact, as far as I can tell, on the admissibility of the evidence one way or another. And for this judge to start saying, well, I don't want to encourage people to illegally getting evidence of illegality is, is just a flawed way of thinking about the problem. It's not actually what the law of evidence is designed to control. It's, like, like it's not up to her to just decide, well, we shouldn't have people going out and doing things by bad methods. Again, um, that that sort of says that, as you point out, like the bad conduct that's being recorded is somehow more acceptable than going in to whistleblow upon the bad conduct. And I, let me just say one last thing. I would have more sympathy, as you pointed out, for a rule that excluded evidence that was illegally obtained if there was actually a way for people to obtain it legally. Like the whole problem that goes on in these circumstances is we know that the government ability to monitor or look at things that are going on is false, is, is is flawed, and we've been unable to capture evidence of offenders in any type of systematic way. And then what, what we have seen over and over again, especially in Canada, is that the only time, the only time farmers are prosecuted ever is when evidence is gathered by third parties because there is no monitoring system. So, I mean, I'd be more sympathetic to an idea of, yeah, let's do it legally, let's get warrants, let's get all this stuff, if any of that were actually happening.
0: Sure, sure. Then we could at least have some reassurance that someone's taking this seriously. But you know, I'm, I'm reading another story about this, Peter, and I'm not sure if you have access to it. So apologize if I'm apologies if I'm talking about something you haven't seen. Um, but I, I did read some other reports about this issue, and apparently, when um, there were first concerns coming out of this farm, the farm worker who reported the initial concerns, uh, went through the right channels, he says. We went to the owner first. Nothing was done. We went to MPI. That's the Ministry of Primary Industries, which polices this area. And nothing was done. We didn't want to leave it. So the worker contacted Farmwatch about the situation, and Farmwatch placed hidden cameras in the milking shed. And that's what captured a month of footage, which the group was then able to supply to the enforcement authorities. So, you know, it's what are people galling. supposed to do? Yeah. Particularly, yeah. what are we supposed to do? Like yeah. if people try to go through the allegedly proper channels and nothing happens, what what are animals supposed to do?
1: Yeah. Everything we just said, right, I still think is valid, but it's particularly inapplicable to this case and particularly galling that the judge throws out the, the evidence in this particular case when on the face of it, they tried every legal means of investigating and effectively the, the authorities... Kel Surprise right Camille said they weren't interested Mm -hmm. you know they have other things to do wow
0: yep yep yeah, ah. exactly it. And you know, Peter, I gotta wonder. I just gotta say it. Um, would this have been the same ruling if someone was suspecting a nursing home of abusing an elderly parent, and they put cameras up and they found beatings of that elderly parent going on? Like you just have to wonder if it would be the same ruling.
1: Well, in Alberta, it might Camille, because that might constitute a trespass. <laughs> but we'll have to.
0: That's true. Probably caught under Alberta's egg gig laws, oh, which gig, um everything outside of egg gig too. That's
1: right. Okay, let's move on, Camille. You've got some stuff. Oh, it's foie gras back in the news again. Oh, we have a good news story, Camille. Could it be?
0: We do have a good news. So there have been a ton of cases about foie gras in California because the state passed um, a challenge, sorry, the state passed a law in 2012, um, or at least it went into effect in 2012, that um, you can't sell foie gras. In California, which is pretty cool. And there have been tons of legal challenges to this basically by the foie gras industry. And so this was the latest one, and they're fairly legally complex, and I won't even uh, pretend to understand exactly uh, on which basis all of these challenges have proceeded. But once again, the judge has upheld the law, and the judge in this case actually said that if the foie gras producers try to bring another case like this, um, they will be subject to court-sanctioned costs. So basically like stop bringing cases like this because they're all gonna lose this law so, is constitutional so, that's the end of the story
1: so so if they bring case number six or seven they're gonna face what we face for the first case in Canada if I got that correctly I just want
0: to, oh my god I, true, just want, isn't it?
1: I just want to get that clear <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, it's true. And Peter, of course, is referring to, well, I assume you're referring to the Lucy the Elephant case. (laughs) Well, just cost sanctions where we
1: get hit every time with cost sanctions. Anytime you you do anything in Canada, you get cost sanctions. But U.S. courts are usually much more forgiving. But apparently they reach a point where the judges say enough's enough. We've heard this case several times already. So now if you bring another type of case, we're going to hit you with cost sanctions. So I guess what I meant is they're just, you know, bringing it up to the point where we are at case number one.
0: Yeah, yeah. Welcome to Canada.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it's great news. Great news to see that uh, the foie gras law is being upheld. I think that's really important. And uh, yeah, certainly we have so few legislative initiatives designed to protect animals in this way that it's good to see that when one finally is enacted by, you know, by citizen referendum, that that the courts will uphold uh, that that, uh, demonstration of democratic will.
0: Yeah, good to see, but also frustrating that these producers still fight it every step of the way and animal groups have to spend all these resources just trying to keep something pretty basic in place. But hey, I guess that's the world we live in.
1: Now we're going back to Alberta. It's been a busy week, I tell you. But uh, we're going back Ooh. to Alberta because we have a result, and I, I we, 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 this ties in a little bit again to gag. This is the uh, case that we reported on uh, last year that prompted the gag law in Alberta. It was a case in which um, um, a number of protesters went onto a turkey farm uh, in Alberta and uh, caused a bit of a you know ruckus with uh, the media coming on as well, and and three of these protesters were charged, and we now have results. Um, in that case, because apparently it looks like, Camille, I don't think this went to trial at all. Um, Although there was a lot of talk originally about it going to trial, which is something I want to discuss, but it looks like a plea resolution was reached instead.
0: Yeah, that's right. So two individuals, uh, Maxwell Ming Ma of Edmonton and Claire Buchanan of Calgary, uh, were each facing one count of break and enter to commit mischief after that protest. And uh, they apparently pled guilty to that offence or to some offence. And they were sentenced in Lethbridge Provincial Court on Friday to a conditional discharge each, which is basically probation. Um, it's a, it's a even better. It's is, even
1: better than probation because you don't get a criminal record at the end of the the term.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's not a com- it's not a criminal conviction. It's um, a finding of guilt, but it's not a record, so it's not going to be. Um, A record in the same way. I mean, it's not like there's no record of it because there is. It's a little bit nuanced, but they will be required to uh, meet certain conditions under probation orders. Um, It didn't say, I don't think, in the story, how long their probation is going to last, but typically it would be from anywhere from about a year to two years, is pretty standard. So they must not have any contact with the turkey farm. They can't post anything publicly about the farm, which is pretty disturbing to me. <laughs> that
1: was that was the condition um, that jumped out to me as well. I'm like, why the hell I know, did they I agree know. with that?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would I would never agree to that. It's uh, you know a huge restriction on people's speech. Um, they can't come within 50 meters of any location where animals are kept.
1: Also, which is another... also a big one. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and then 50 hours of community service, which is which is not so bad um well let me and just- it looks like another and the, the third person was planning to be in court um probably by now and probably
1: did plead by now. So let me, can I just give a take? I'm curious on your take, but I mean, my take is this, right? We've said this before, like they protested, valid, right? They broke the law. We've, I've told protesters before um, that if you're gonna go in and do something, you're always risking um, breaking the law. I mean, we've also discussed on this before, Camille, that like they could have chosen to try and argue they weren't trying to commit mischief. Right? I, I mean, I think a daytime protest in the middle of a turkey farm is a tough call. Um, I think we've discussed that before too. I think I think it's, a, it's tough to say you weren't trying to interrupt or disrupt the working of the farm. Like that's just gonna be a tough defense to run, but they chose to do that. They were advised um, beforehand um, of the possibility of charges being laid. Charges were laid and they reached a resolution. Like at a certain point, I would say um, the resolution that was reached by Alberta standards was very fair (laughs) like I mean I've seen people get a lot more for a lot less so uh, I would say a conditional discharge where these people get to go free and uh, is 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 a perfectly reasonable result so I mean I think at the end of the day they chose they didn't want to run this trial Uh, perhaps COVID had something to do with it perhaps the fact that uh, it would have gotten they would have been less able to to run the trial in a way that would have would have you brought to light some of what they felt was going on at the turkey farm and and that is certainly every protester's choice
0: yeah yeah it is um you know interestingly this incident at the turkey farm was actually the impetus for alberta's egg gag legislation so it's unlikely that someone in a similar position in the future would have a similar plea arrangement because now the egg gag fines are um, up to, oh, I forget now, I think it's no, $10,000 for a first offense.
1: Yeah, much heavier. Yeah, and of course, these yeah. these guys were part of a group as well, an organization which also would have been subject to huge penalties um, under this law. I mean, I mean. Up to $200,000. Yeah, and, and again, like, it, it's, it's, you know, that's, that's, protesters throughout time risk the uh, the possibility of being convicted and, and facing jail time for their cause and if they want to do that and they want to run the trial to expose what's going on, um, that has been done too. but I, I think it's fair to say it's every person's individual choice. They were the ones who put themselves on the line. they've chosen to plead guilty and then and, and they've received uh, a result that is you know in the scheme of things reasonable.
0: Yep. Yeah, yeah, there we are. But civil disobedience, it's an important part of social change.
1: There's no question. And I think this story will continue to resonate because, of course, as you point out, it led to much bigger things. It's its part of the narrative of what's going on in Alberta. So uh, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting that it's reached this conclusion.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right. Now, jumping overseas again, our last news story for today is um, a very heartbreaking story, actually, about um, a million minks being called in the Netherlands and Spain after um, a bunch of farm workers and many of the minks tested positive for COVID-19. So it looks like a 100,000 minks have been called in Spain, Peter. And um, let's see, I'm not sure about the number. And it's not immediately apparent to me how many in them. Um, in uh, the Netherlands, but must be quite a few if the total is a million. Mm. So, yeah, it looks like it's unclear exactly the source of the COVID-19, whether it came from the minks and was passed to farm workers or vice versa. They're not even sure of the mechanism by which that can happen, which way it can go. Uh, But apparently COVID is showing up on mink farms in Denmark as well. Wow. And of course, the response is just killing all the animals. Um, The troubling thing about this is that apparently Mink farming in, in the Netherlands is supposed to be phased out in just a couple years by 2024. Mm. Um, but there's no legal requirement at this point that those farms not restock with minks. Um, but apparently there are some calls for the closures to speed up in light of the situation. So the Dutch parliament did consider a motion by the Dutch party for the animals calling for faster shutdowns. But overall, I just think it's really crappy. Like We know that keeping wildlife and these beautiful semi-aquatic animals in cages like this is awful for them, and also the perfect breeding grounds for disease. But who pays the price when our folly leads to them getting sick? Of course it's them, not us.
1: It's a story we've heard time and time again, Camille. Anything goes wrong, you liquidate the animals. Kill as many as you can as quickly as you can, and then rehouse them again in the same circumstances and wait for these things to rinse and repeat. It is so frustrating yep. to see these things happen over and over and over and again. And it just seems like we just will not learn or refuse to learn that not only are these uh, types of farms cruel, um, they are risky to all of us. Is it's It's like, it's a nice, this is our last story of the day, Camille, before heroes and zeros and it's a nice return back to a lot of what jonathan saffron four was talking about about the links between our actions and it's like failing to recognize what is going on and just continuing to act in the same way over and over again
0: yeah and once again this is what happens when we treat animals like commodities instead of sentient beings they end up gassed to death um, in a landfill and uh, life continues on for us so let's hope that we learn our lesson this time
1: Yeah, right, Camille. Come on. (laughs) We're human beings.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we are. All right.
1: Well, that is our lengthy uh, topic of the news. And uh, that was a lot, Camille, but I'm glad we got the riddle.
0: Yeah, me too.
1: Heroes and Zeros. And now it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show, Heroes and Zeros. Camille, it's heroes, heroes and, zeros. and zeros. Here we are. I'm heroes excited. I'm excited. Me too. Okay, let's start with uh our do, zero first, hero first. I can never decide, Camille. It's so goddamn hard. Um, let's start with our zero first. I feel like I need to end on an uplifting note today. Sure. Okay. So, right. our zero of the month is oh, the government of New South Wales. Camille, it feels just like yesterday, Camille. When we were applauding the government of New South Wales decision to ban greyhound racing for like a millisecond, they took this brave new step and said greyhound racing, well, it's incredibly cruel. And of course, there's been an undercover expose, Camille an undercover expose that today, who knows, the video might be thrown out as illegally obtained, right? But they ah. discovered all kinds of things wrong with Greyhound Racing. And of course, what they've done now, Camille, is they've decided, well, we can fix this. We're the government. We're going to keep Greyhound Racing going and we will make sure that the um, that the Greyhound Racers get their act together by... Well, let's aim for 2036. <laughs>
0: 2036. So they're introducing some kind of like likely <sighs> inadequate code that the minister says will see greyhounds looked after better than anywhere else in Australia. But they're waiting until 2036 for it to be implemented. Years. So 16 years. That
1: is, I, I mean, I thought the Canadian pig code phase out, which was something like. Wasn't it like twelve to thirteen years? <laughs> it Was like,
0: well, the the battery cage phase out for chickens was twenty years. Oh, I sorry, think it, twenty. It, Jesus, twenty thirty seven is is when that goes into effect. Wow,
1: I'm looking. So forward. these guys are
0: only slightly better.
1: Camille, my my one of my hopes in life is that when I'm gazing out from my nursing home, I will hear the news that greyhounds are are living in compliant kennel areas in New South Wales because we'll have made it to January 2036. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely ludicrous.
0: Yeah, that's the only word for it. It's pretty I mean, bad.
1: The, 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 we don't, I don't want to get this into a long diatribe about the racing industry, but the greyhound racing industry, terrible as it is, churns through dogs. So many unwanted greyhounds end up lost from the sport, injured, you know, just thrown out because they are no longer race capable. And then there's the actual treatment of the animals within the greyhound racing community, which is not good as this expose took place and showed that their kennels, that their treatment, all of it was very, very poor. But now... What we need to fix it, Camille, is a code. Let's make a code with lengthy, oh, lengthy practice. transition periods. I mean, hey, that's what earns you a zero on this show.
0: Yeah, yeah, zero for New South Wales. All right, well, our hero, and I am glad you ended on a happier note, and that wasn't the last thing that we left our listeners with, but... um, we want to give the Hero Award this episode to the activists who've been mobilizing in the wake of Regan Russell's death, Uh, particularly the folks who held a really great protest in Toronto last weekend, uh, last Friday, actually, the um, 17th of July. They did a very effective protest downtown, I thought, Peter, that involved... um, You know, not only good visuals in the term, in terms of signs, but also they used uh, some fake blood, which I thought looked pretty stark. And I think was effective in reminding people about the stakes here.
1: I think we should link to the picture in our show notes. It's incredibly, uh, it, it's really graphic. It shows a lot of people, you know, in dead poses with fake blood on them, with signs of of what the cost of activism is today. And the cost that advocates are literally paying, uh, certainly Regan Russell and her family paid the price of, of actually advocating on behalf of the most helpless beings in our society. And I think it's an it was a, an incredible effort by these brave advocates to uh, uh, continue Continue to push and demand justice for Regan Russell.
0: Yeah, good stuff. They're demanding justice. They're pointing out that Bill 156 is unconstitutional and bad for animals and civil rights. And they're calling for an inquiry into her death. So I hope that all of those demands get met.
1: Me too. Me too, Camille. We just continue to hope. I mean, hope is what we need. Camille. It's hope. It's a very hopeful (laughs) show. We're living on hope. That's that's what we're doing. Hope that uh, one day we'll get some of these things right. But I tell you, um, these advocates gave me hope. Uh, it's, It's a very stark, powerful picture. And it Really grabs attention to uh, uh, what this whole, you know, this whole incident regarding Regan Russell is all about. So uh, a well-deserved hero to those advocates and keep up the good work.
0: All right, that's our episode for this week. It's been nice to be back. And we'll see you all in a couple more weeks.
1: We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today.
0: We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. catcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show.
1: And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us.
0: You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order, if you like what you hear.
1: You can find me on Twitter at at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com.
0: And you can find me on Twitter at at Camille Labchuck, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics.
1: And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great IRAW podcasts, visit IRAWPOD.com. That's I R O A R P O D.com.